All right, here we go. You ready, Bill? Yep, yep. All right, here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome, everybody, to episode 15 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with my colleague, Bill Rogio. Hi, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, and we run FTD's Long War Journal. This week, we're going to do another news roundup. There's a lot going on, as usual, but several st- items stand out in terms of their importance to us, at least. Um, we're going to start with uh, President Trump recently gave a speech at the West Point graduation ceremony. I think it was on June 13th. We're recording this uh, some days later. And what's interesting about the speech from our perspective is just how disconnected from reality it is in terms of what's actually going on. Uh, President Trump has endorsed a number of talking points that we think are sort of shallow about what we've termed the 9-11 wars. Um, It's worth getting into it. There's sort of inherent contradictions in what he's saying. And this isn't necessarily about the politics of President Trump or the Trump administration. Um, I by my to be honest with you, I find myself on a political island these days. Um, But you know, there are, there are both sides are making disingenuous arguments about uh, the 9-11 wars. And that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be ambivalent or skeptical or critical of them. There's plenty to criticize. There's plenty of, of reasons to think that maybe, you know, the U.S. has spent too much money and put too much effort into this post 9-11. There are plenty of areas to critique this, sure. Uh, and there's, there's, there's downsides in terms of civilian casualties and the human costs of all this and deployments. There are plenty of reasons to be critical of the 9-11 wars. But we should be critical of what actually is occurring and always keep in mind what America's actual vital interests are. And this is where I think President Trump's speech at West Point started to muddle the issue even further. Um, and this is not unique to him. As I said, I think some of his political rivals, in fact, have muddled the muddled this story uh, quite a bit as well, going back to the Obama administration days and even before that. But Phil, uh, you can help us out here. Phil Hexeth, who helps us uh, edit this show. Phil, I was hoping if you could pull these clips here that I've identified. Uh, you know, one will be this uh, this clip from President Trump at his speech. I'd like to play that for listeners so they can understand sort of where we're where we're coming from and what sort of caught my attention in all this. And so we're going to play that here now. Each of you begins your career in the Army at a crucial moment in American history. We are restoring the fundamental principles that the job of the American soldier is not to rebuild foreign nations, but defend and defend strongly our nation from foreign enemies. We are ending the era of endless wars in its place is a renewed, clear-eyed focus on defending America's vital interests. It is not the duty of U.S. troops to solve ancient conflicts in faraway lands that many people have never even heard of. We are not the policemen of the world, but let our enemies be unnoticed. If our people are threatened, we will never, ever hesitate to act. And when we fight, From now on, we will only fight to win. As MacArthur said, in war, there is no substitute for victory. Uh, President Trump went on to argue that his administration has rebuilt the military after it had been totally depleted from these endless wars. I don't think that's entirely accurate, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I think first, let's compare that clip that you just heard from President Trump earlier this month at West Point. Let's compare that to what President Trump said in August 21st, on August 21st, 2017. This is when he announced his strategy for Afghanistan. Phil, can you grab that clip for us and let's play that here. The men and women who serve our nation in combat deserve a plan for victory. They deserve the tools they need and the trust they have earned 
to fight and to win. Second, the consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. 9-11, the worst terrorist attack in our history, was planned and directed from Afghanistan because that country was ruled by a government that gave comfort and shelter to terrorists. A hasty withdrawal would create a vacuum that terrorists, including ISIS and Al-Qaeda, would instantly fill, just as happened before September 11th. Our troops will fight to win. We will fight to win. From now on, victory will have a clear definition. Attacking our enemies, obliterating ISIS, crushing Al-Qaeda, preventing the Taliban from taking over Afghanistan, and stopping mass terror attacks against America before they emerge. Now, as you heard in that clip, President Trump was talking about giving the American armed forces a plan for victory in Afghanistan. That's what he, was, he clearly defined that he was going to have, uh, that his administration was going to pursue a victory in Afghanistan. Now, Bill and I um, very, I would say, half-heartedly sort of endorsed the Trump plan back in 2017 for Afghanistan because, you know, look, we don't want to see Afghanistan fall to the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies. They remain ally today. But as you can look back and see what Bill and I wrote at the time, we didn't say that there was a plan for victory on the table, and we didn't say that the Trump administration had come up with a plan for victory. Um, and clearly they hadn't. But what's remarkable about President Trump's comments here um, is that he's, you know, in his first, the first clip we played from West Point, he talks, he cites General MacArthur as saying there's no substitute for victory. Well, Bill, it seems to me that the Trump administration is pursuing, uh, is absolutely pursuing some substitutes for victory, including you saw President Trump last year wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David and pretend that they're now our, our, our counterterrorism partner. It seems like this is all just sort of a, a incoherent mess to me. What do you think, Bill? Absolutely. Look, our criticism back then, our, our hesitancy, I mean, his words, you know, sound great. But both you and I knew at that time, point in time, there was no desire to go back to, into Afghanistan. When I say go back into, to ramp U.S. forces back up into Afghanistan in order to achieve that victory. And that's absolutely what would have been needed. There was no desire to do that. So these were just empty words. There was no victory without another U.S.-style surge with a commitment to expand the rules of engagement, to cut back the nonsense that has cost us from winning to, you know, to be, to be willing to take bold risks uh, to, in order to defeat the Taliban. So, <clears throat> so we knew, uh, you know, at that time that that wasn't going to happen. So, and President yeah, Trump, that, and President Trump, to his credit, did change. As far as we know, of course, these remain classified. Did change rules of engagement to open them up a little bit to allow the U.S. forces to go after more types of targets in Afghanistan in terms of war fighting. But you and I knew at the time, and we talked about it at the time, that this is not a sort of a whole wholesale war effort here. This isn't a, a large scale yeah. war effort. This, the U.S. It didn't mean that the U.S. was actually going to fully embrace the Afghan war. It was going to remain with one foot out the door or one foot and three toes out the door. Yeah, whatever he, whatever rules were expanded, there was not enough force inside of Afghanistan to capitalize on that. The Afghan military really it, it operates in a defensive mode. Uh, it sticks on its bases and, and absorbs Taliban attacks. Yes, they have commandos that go out with U.S. Special Operations Forces as strike forces. But again, it's not enough. And that's why when he said, 
our troops will fight to win, we will fight to win, and talked about victory, we knew that these were empty words, that there was there was no victory to be had here. So, you know, again, this was, to me, it was just empty bluster. And then, what you know, as you said, what happened? Within less than a year, I believe, of that speech, he started negotiating with the Taliban. So he cut he cut his own feet out you know, from under him. It was and, about it was about an hour, about a year. I'm sorry, about a year yeah. after that speech that they started pursuing that goal. Yeah, they think the negotiation actually started sometime after that. But you're right; it was about it was a year, about a year after that that they immediately then decided to sort of go back to the revisionist narrative on the Taliban that they can be good boys now and all this. Yeah, they they pretended they actually brought the Taliban to the table via military force. When you, both you and I knew that was not the case, the Cal- Taliban did not lose districts that were under their control. They did not lose senior leaders, were not killed during these offensives. The Taliban has been very clear that it has a deep bench, and we know that to be true when we watch their military operations. So whoever they did kill in the field and kill or capture in the field, it wasn't enough. So, you know, I when you combined rhetoric like this with the rhetoric of empty wars, you get as you said, a completely muddled strategy. There hasn't been strategy in Afghanistan. There hasn't been strategy, real strategy in Syria or any other theater in Somalia or any other theater of war that we're in against in, in these 9-11 wars since I could remember. Well, let's get, let's, let's build on that for a second because what part of the Trump and also this is a common critique on the left and now from the isolationist right, and you can see these in the clips that we played um, or in both the speeches that we just cited from President Trump, he has this idea that, uh, this argument that we're not re- in the business of rebuilding foreign nations, and that basically it's not the job of American military to go build these build these foreign nations and, and engage in nation building. Now, excuse me, uh, I don't think the U.S. has been engaged in nation building anywhere for quite some time. Yes, in Afghanistan there was a, a, a sort of a bifurcated effort, one to help build up Afghan security forces, and there's a lot of grift and rot and corruption in that for sure. There's a lot of wasted expenditures, absolutely. Um, the same, the other part of the mission has been counterterrorism. That's the closest you can say that America has gotten to anywhere nation building since really 2011, 2012. Yeah, that's Cer- right. Certainly not doing nation building in Iraq. Certainly not doing nation building in Syria. Certainly not doing a nation building anywhere in Africa. So when people say, you know, the U.S. has been involved in nation building, we got to get away from nation building. My response to that, I'm sorry, is what the hell are you talking about, right? Where where are we nation building? And I'm not advocating for nation building at this point, believe me. But you know, at least just at least be consistent with what's actually going on, right, Bill? Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, supporting foreign militaries, training them, things of that nature is not the same as nation building. It's, it's, uh, I, I don't understand where these arguments come from. There has, they come, I, they come from, said, they come from ignorance. It's sort of yeah. my, my view now, by the way, and this is probably one of the more controversial things I'm going to say in this podcast, and I don't really care. I'm, I'm ripping roaring today, as you and Phil know, uh, for my, my, uh, our discussion before we got on air, uh, you know. I think the more I've looked at foreign policy all these years in America, Bill, and I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I kind of send, tend to see it more and more now that people's ideas or their arguments are driven by sort of their root biases, their reflexive sort of ideological way they view it the world. So if you have people who say, well, you know, the US, they don't want the U.S. engaged in any of these areas overseas, they get this caricature in their head that the America is nation building all over the place and spending all these resources to build all these foreign nations because that's an easy thing to knock down. On the on the other side, we we've 
you and I have dealt with these people before in the past, including people in our circles who I like and who I think have good ideas or, or at least good intentions. I mean, not good ideas. Uh, there are naive interventionists, people who just want to intervene in all these different places and think that they that think that nation building can occur. The truth is that America, you know, really the the muddled sort of 9-11 wars hasn't really been, spent a lot of time on either one of those poles. Uh, it's sort of uh, been always in between. And it's always been a mess. Um, but it's very easy to caricature one's arguments or to argue against the, uh, argue against a straw man than it is to deal with the complex reality. Yeah, Tom, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, look, and it gets it, it, it operates like this on so many levels. The, the policy comes first. The facts will be made to support said policy. That's what we see in D- Washington, D.C., day in and day out. And that is why you get this muddled mess like like we have. Some of it is born of ignorance. And I think some of it is is comes from, in fact, from malice. They don't want they don't view the United States as being a a force for good. So therefore, they're going to restrain the United States from doing anything outside its borders. Now, I want to be perfectly clear. I actually agree. We shouldn't be the, the world's policemen. We shouldn't be the world's nation builder, we should be, as you said, be supporting our vital interests. So sometimes you do need to serve as a policeman in an area or conduct some nation building, but this needs to be very carefully thought out. And when it is engaged, it's a, it's a process that needs to, to cross administrations. Instead, what we have, I, I call it McWar, you know, uh, you want to go through the drive-through, get your, get your war, grab your victory and pull out. Well, in, when you have four-year administrations, um, you know you can't you can't you can't fight this way. You can't you know the Bush administration decides it's going to nation build in Iraq and establish a military and 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 you know have it be a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. Then President Obama, um, you know, and you're expected to do that in a, a what a four or eight-year term. President Obama's elected, and the first thing he says is, "We're getting the hell out of Iraq." So, you know, that's not foreign policy. That's not foreign policy across administrations. That's not how things used to work um, during the Cold War and shortly after. So we're, we're in a, definitely in a different world now over the last uh, two decades. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, it's smart to, to not get, get involved in policing and nation building, especially if our political leadership is not willing to see these things through across not across a single administration, but across multiple administrations across decades. These are these are problems, these that that require decades to resolve, and we don't have the the patience or the will to do that. Yeah, and I would I would just it's very well said. I, I I would just add that it's not even within administrations you can have the patience for this, right? I mean, you know, one of the things I was going to do today, but I think we did it previously, and we'll do it again. But you can do the same comparison we did with Trump speeches now between 2017 and this earlier this month. It was the same thing with Obama, right? Where he goes in late to December 2009. I think it was at West Point where he says, you know, basically in Afghanistan we got a. We got to commit to the effort, and we got to yeah. win. And then, you know, a couple of years later, oh, the Taliban. We got to negotiate with the Taliban and come up with some deal, and we're going to get out regardless. So, I mean, you know, all this is sort of this is not the way to fight wars. I'm certainly not a military expert, an expert on war fighting, but I think just basic common sense tells you this isn't the way to fight wars. 
But you know, the bottom line is here's here's the, the first straw man we talked about from this is this idea that America has been engaged in built, rebuilding foreign nations, as uh, President Trump said, and been, been engaged in nation building. That's not what America has been doing for quite some time. It's been since Iraq that that really has been pursued. Um, and yes, there have been wasted resources in Afghanistan, but it's just not true that the, the America's involved these nation building efforts all over the place. Here's the second straw man is sort of this endless wars rhetoric. And I do consider it a straw man because think about it logically, uh, Bill, about what this actually implies, right? You know, President Trump has been president for more than three years now, right? You want to get out, get out of everywhere. Go ahead. You're commander in chief. Right? Who's owning endless wars? You're the decision maker. If your advisors are, are going against what you want, and that's one of the theories of all this, is that Trump has been talked into these wars by these nefarious advisors. Uh, excuse me. First of all, that says that, you're, that President Trump isn't a, a man of his own. Uh, he's not his own man, that he can't make his own decisions, which maybe is the case you know, when it comes to this stuff. Um, but um, be that as it may, he's still the ultimate decider. You know, if he's criticizing anybody for being in war since 2017, it's himself. He's the commander in chief. He can get out. And quite frankly, you know, the other the other aspect of this this endless wars rhetoric is this idea, it's sort of a conspiratorial idea you see on social media and elsewhere that this American war machine is keeping America involved in all these places. Uh, you know, you're not you're not paying attention to the recent past when you make that argument. I mean, President Obama, got, you know, pulled all of American troops out of Iraq by 2011. He got them down to less than 10,000 in Afghanistan. And he was totally on the way out. The war machine didn't keep those conflicts going at at, at a full uh, full pace. Uh, far from it. So, you know, again, what in the hell are you talking about when you talk about endless wars? I mean, and finally on that point, as you and I keep documenting, Bill, over and over again, it's not an endless war, it's an endless jihad, right? The jihadis are going to keep fighting regardless of whether or not somebody in D.C. thinks we should be there or not, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And, and, and actually, within the military, there was a lot of resistance to staying in Iraq. Um, the military did not want that fight. Same thing in Afghanistan. These uh, small wars, these brush fire, brush fire wars, these insurgencies, the military hates. It would love to scrub fighting small wars, insurgencies from the books um, because they're difficult. They're, they're hard to win. Um, they require a lot of resources, not not in the same of uh, not resources in the terms of tanks and airplanes, but they were a lot of the, the military doesn't have the the intellectual desire or capacity to fight these wars over time. And, you know, so if the if the big what I call the big military, the you know, the the generals who want to, you know, were preparing for the next war against the Soviet Union, which doesn't exist anymore on the plains of Germany, tank, big tank battles and, and, and battling the, the Chinese on the, in the Pacific and the Taiwan Straits. That's the wars they want to fight. They do not want to fight in Afghanistan. They don't want to fight in Syria or Somalia because these types of wars are distractions. And so if the, if the, if the military uh, in, in whole had its way, it would get out of these wars. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're talking about big DOD bureaucracy there when you're, when you're saying that. Yes. And it, it, yes. What we dealt with. I mean, there's certainly are individual commanders here and there who see the limited footprint uh, in various areas as worthwhile. But the, overall, I think when you look at sort of, you know, look look at what happened in Iraq, was there some pushback to withdraw under Obama? Minimal, I would say. Right, Bill? Minimal. I mean, minimal. you know, minimal. Um, you know, was is there is there a big pushback? Oh, Tom, in on that point, real quick. General Petraeus. I know you're going to go. I know you're going to go to P four. This is one of your favorite. Yeah, yeah. Who 
entire career, well, not entire career, but his career up to that point was yeah, counter, you know, he made his name on counterinsurgency. Yep. He implemented it in Iraq. And I believe at the time he was commander of U.S. forces Afghanistan um, when Obama was withdrawing from Iraq. What did he do? Did he resign in protest? Nope, he took CIA. So he he by his climbing up the up the his the military and political career, he endorsed this. So um, you know, I think that just goes to show sort of the uh, the temp the weakness of, a, of the military when it comes to these issues. Some of this is political. They they're looking for the next promotion, um, failing upward and, and things of that nature. But, you know, again, I mean, the, the military did not resist ending the conflict in Iraq and what happened within four years, the U S had to redeploy to Iraq because of the rise of the Islamic state. Yeah. And to put it another way, Mr. Counterinsurgency himself, P4, didn't object when Obama kneecapped counterinsurgency as a doctrine, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yep. Um, and so that's, you know, that, that's like, you know, it's sort of the way I've put that in the past when we talk about that bill is like somebody comes up to uh, to me or you and says, oh, the jihadists aren't that bad. You know, don't worry about it. And we said, OK, no problem. Give me a job somewhere in Washington. Right. I mean, it's sort of so inconsistent with our entire life life's work, you know that it's, t- it's tough to explain that way. It's tough to explain what the reasoning is there on all that stuff. And I don't want to make it all about him. But but the point is that even the people who are most invested in these conflicts didn't really strenuously object to America withdrawing from them. Um, and-, and, and let me be perfectly clear. If, if you and I believed that the jihadists were defeated, we, we'd be like, okay, time to find another career. I yeah, mean, that, that, that's, that's the reality of this. Of I, course. I've always said that. I, I would more than happily take a victory in this war and and move on to another career but the re- the reality is that isn't the case right uh, agreed and but here's the other thing so we talked about there's a straw man in the uh what president trump said about uh, nation building i think that's just wrong there's the problems with the endless wars rhetoric which sort of relies on a series of straw men i think um implicitly and then there's this this other straw man that the president trump uh uh, said again or, or was using again in his speech where he says that basically the U.S. isn't in the business of solving ancient conflicts in faraway lands. Well, now, wait a minute. I mean, you know, what ancient conflicts in faraway lands is the U.S. currently trying to settle? The Taliban rose to power in the mid-1990s in Afghanistan. That's the oldest conflict we have here that we're dealing with. Of course, Afghanistan was very different in the 1970s. Um, the situation evolved throughout the 1980s leading up to the mess that was the 1990s. But this isn't an ancient conflict in a faraway land. You're dealing with events that are sort of well within living memory or should be. Uh, in that respect. And then, of course, when you come to ISIS in Iraq, that's not a, about solving in, in Syria and elsewhere. This isn't about solving ancient conflicts in faraway, faraway lands. ISIS is, is an outgrowth of certainly there are older currents or older roots underlying ISIS for sure, but it's a relatively new phenomenon that dealing with this as an organization and what it's doing on the global stage. Um, that's not about solving ancient conflicts in faraway lands. And then, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me, Bill, when I looked at the speech is that and here's here's how this is the inconsistencies in all this. You see President Trump, on the one hand, is criticizing these endless wars, with which, of course, as commander in chief, he can end. Um, on the same hand, he's trying to trumpet his own successes or own supposed successes in all this, because he says at one point in the, in the speech at West Point, 
In recent years, America's warriors have made clear to all the high costs of threatening the American people. The savage ISIS caliphate has been 100% destroyed under the Trump administration, and its barbaric leader, al-Baghdadi, is gone, killed, over, and the world's number one terrorist, Qasem Soleimani, is likewise dead. Well, now, wait a minute. You know, these are parts of the so-called endless wars that you're claiming now victory in. You're saying that you've, you've achieved victory in it. Um, so you're saying that this was worth fighting in some some respect because otherwise, how could you claim victory in it? Now, of course, we know that the victory he's claiming over ISIS is, is not true. Um, yes, the territorial caliphate is gone, but it's not been 100% destroyed. Not close. It's rage, It's a raging insurgency today in, in, in Iraq and parts of Syria. Well, raging, it's sort of not at its peak, but it's still, still going strong anyway. Um, and has presence elsewhere. Qasem Soleimani is sort of was part of a conflict that is, I mean, U.S. hasn't even been directly a conflict with Iran throughout all this process, um, although Iran has worked through proxies to kill Americans. That's part of the endless wars as well. Um, you know, so I don't know. I find there's, there's a tension here between, on the one hand, saying, you know, you know, damn these endless wars, and on the other hand, saying, hey, I won this war that was part of the endless wars, and aren't I great? What do you think, Bill? Hey. Yeah. So um, as far as ancient, ancient conflicts go, OK, if the Taliban issue is an ancient conflict, well, then what about the China-Taiwan conflict, which dates back to the 1940s? Oh, man. Should good we, point. Yeah, good point. Should we yeah. be not? I mean, that's a very, very foreign war and far more ancient yep. than Afghanistan. Should we disengage from that as well? Just saying. Yeah. I mean, that that's the point, right? I mean, all these all these conflicts, they have older roots, but. Um, doesn't mean America doesn't have interests or even vital interests in in protecting Americans and protecting American uh, assets and interests around the globe. For of course, um, you now now here's another point in all this. So I looked over the speech and I did the search uh, on the White House website and I didn't see any mention of Al Qaeda in, in President Trump's speech. Now Al Qaeda is not part of a, an ancient conflict in a faraway land. Al Qaeda is a relatively new pheno- phenomenon founded in the late 1980s and of course they have bad intentions when it comes to americans and i you know as you can make the resource allocation argument when it comes to counterterrorism that we don't want to spend as much as we have in the past on counterterrorism efforts because we have to worry about other things okay um but you know the bottom line is to me it's a vital interest to protect americans from counterterrorism attacks uh, terrorist attacks i'm sorry including big spectacular attacks which is part of what president trump has, has said he's going to protect americans from in the past but here's, here's again how this is inconsistent. So there's no mention of Al-Qaeda in the speech. Well, what's the U.S. been doing in the past several months when it comes to hunting Al-Qaeda? Right, Bill? So let's go through it real quick. What do you think? Let's go through let's go through some of the examples. So just earlier this month, for example, we documented how um, the U.S. did this targeted airstrike in Idlib, Syria that killed two, we think killed two senior Al-Qaeda officials. And the U.S. used this R9X Hellfire missile. It's this sort of exotic weapon. It looks like it's out of a James Bond movie where um, the missile um, rains down on the vehicle. In this case, it was a, I think it was a Hyundai Santa Fe car. And instead of just blowing up the car, it actually dispatches or dispenses or uh, unfurls six blades near the tip and basically slices the um, victims to death. In the car, so this is a way to minimize civilian casualties, minimize collateral damage, and and try and make sure that you still get your guy, which is what this has been doing. The U.S. intelligence community has come up with this sort of way of hunting terrorists, and the two that were killed include Abu Al Qasim, uh, whose, whose real name is Khalid Aruri. Uh, he goes back way back. I mean, he goes way back to the 1990s. He was a close comrade of Abu. Musab al-Zarqawi, he's somebody who followed Zarqawi from Jordan to Afghanistan, through Iran to Iraq, and then uh, was detained for a while in Iran, and then gets released, and he ends up in Syria. 
This is a guy who was uh, very important within Al Qaeda's ranks, but you know you don't see President Trump uh, trumpeting his death or, or claiming his death in this West Point speech or telling Americans, "Hey, you know we still have a Al Qaeda issue we have to take care of." Um, you know, I mean, that's the first of the four examples we're going to talk about here, Bill. But isn't that a, isn't that just sort of show you the disconnect really between what the president is saying? I mean, this he gives a speech at West Point, and it's literally either hours before or hours after. You know, uh, Khaled Aruri is killed by this exotic R9X missile that's shot into a car. Yeah, exactly. Oh, by the way, that R9X, its it, nickname is the Flying Ginsu after the famous Ginsu knives. Remember those commercials from way, way back? I'm old enough too. Um, yeah, listen, it is a complete disconnect. How are you know? How could you declare the Islamic State dead? We just killed a couple of Islamic State commanders uh, in in mid May. Um, three of them, in fact, uh, in, in strikes. We got – this just doesn't make sense. You can't say we want to end the endless wars but continue to hunt. I mean is killing al-Qaeda leaders in airstrikes, is that war or are they, or are they just going to cut this out and call it – define it as counterterrorism? Maybe that's what they're doing in their heads. I don't know. I, I'm not – I can't figure this out. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you, Tom, and I think we discussed this recently. I don't know what our strategy is anymore in Syria, in Somalia, in North Africa. Oh, I don't think there Iraq. is. I don't think there is a strategy. Right. I think the, I there think, isn't. Yeah, right. it's, they, inco- it's incoherent, and right. that's why you have President Trump making speeches but like this. It's certainly not nation building, right? I mean, yep. there's certainly not nation building going on. You can't say that's a strategy, and you can't say this is all about ancient conflicts in faraway lands. I mean, that's just such a sneering sort of phrasing, I think. You know, yeah. it's just so it's so condescending, really, whoever wrote that, because, uh, you know, President Trump didn't write that. Um, and maybe, just, maybe that RX-9 strike is a nation building in the effort we're delivering some knives to jihadists in order to, to help their lives. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I don't know either. But, I mean, that's the first of the four examples that we, we've come up with. The reason was just on the al-Qaeda side of the coin, because, of course, there's a lot of ISIS examples, as you rightfully sure. point out. Um you know, the second is, you know, as we were preparing to record this podcast, which will be released a few days after we record, um, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb came out and they issued a video. It was nearly 12 minutes long from the spokesman or one other spokesman um, confirming the death of Abdul Malik Drukdel in Mali. Now, this is another successful counterterrorism operation. Is there American-led nation building in Mali? No. I don't even think the French, who have a more sizable presence there, are engaged in nation building. Um but the U.S. helped the French hunt down Abdul Malik Drukdel, another guy whose career goes back to at least the 1990s, another senior al-Qaeda leader. Again, uh, his death is unremarked. It goes by unremarked in, in President Trump's uh, West Point speech. So again, another example of a guy who the U.S. thought was enough of a priority to go out and kill or help the French kill. Um, and they killed some of his uh, men alongside him. And yet there's no real senior level political leadership explaining why it's necessary for the U.S. to do this. Yeah, I mean... Look, the, the U.S. military touted its uh, support um, for helping the French kill Drukdel. I mean, and, and that's it, right? We don't hear, like you said, we don't hear anything about the political leadership. We don't, you know, why was it important to kill him? Well, maybe because there's an ongoing war in North Africa and West Africa that is a direct threat to the U.S. and Europe that needs to be dealt with. You know, another thing on uh, Drukdel, he's a classic case. I'm going to uh, um, diverge just a tad here. But That's all right. Remember, we, we talked about him last last week in episode yeah, 14. Exactly. But, but there's, there's a lot to say about him still. So, Of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, 
the resiliency of, of Al Qaeda, the length of time that this guy was involved with jihad, the amount he led um, Al Qaeda's branch in North Africa for what, 14 years? You know, this is what we're up against. And yet we're going to pretend that we're just going to disengage that. The, you're right. It, I mean, you, you came up with the term, Tom, endless jihad. Drutel is one of the you know, he's an endless jihadi. He's been involved in this in decade. They don't retire. They get killed on the battlefield or they die of old age. That's how the gen- endless jihad is, um, is it continues. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is what's interesting to me about all this is you and I can remember a time uh, politically when, you know, if the president of the United States was giving a major speech at West Point, and was going to deal with counterterrorism and all. You know that the the death of Drickdell, even though it wasn't a direct American action, America played a support role for the French. It was something that would have been trumpeted. It's something Absolutely. that the president, the president of the United States, would have trumpeted as a major success. This is a guy who was reporting directly to Osama bin Laden, was directly loyal to Osama bin Laden, and then Ayman al-Zawahiri. We went in episode 14 through some of the correspondence in which Drickdell was reporting back to al-Qaeda senior leadership. This guy was a fully made man within al-Qaeda world. He's clearly somebody who was important. Um, does this end al-Qaeda's existence in North and West Africa or Mali and the surrounding countries? Of course not. But it's something that would have been trumpeted in the past, and yet here you, you don't even have a mention of al-Qaeda in the speech. It's just it's just interesting to see the, again the disconnect, um, you know, and, and ba- basically you know there you know we've we've talked about how there's a, this push throughout analytic circles and policymaking circles to play disconnect the dots. This this partly or mostly motivated by the politics of this, which basically the U.S. has been trying to extricate itself from these wars for many years now, um, and has really had you know more than one foot out the door in Afghanistan, totally left Iraq. The idea that, you know, that basically this war machine is, is just endlessly sort of engaged in conflict for its own designs and own purposes just doesn't stand muster, really. It doesn't hold up to any sort of basic, the basic smell test. Um, and, and here's a guy in Drukdel who, you know, I, I got to repeat this, by the way, Bill, because this is sort of one of the frustration you and I have on reporting on this stuff, too. You know, AFRICOM, U.S. Africa Command, is probably the most plugged in in terms, terms of trying to explain you know, who it is that they're fighting. And I give them credit for that. But here, you know, we gave them an opportunity to confirm what the French said. The French said that Drukdel, and we discussed this on the last episode, that Drukdel was, you know, uh, a second deputy to Ayman al-Zawahiri, meaning he was part of al-Qaeda senior management, um, and that he was um, somebody who was part of al-Qaeda's management committee, meaning, again, he was part of the senior management. And we've heard this from other sources, so this is, wasn't new to us that the French would say this. But we gave Af- U.S. Africa Command a, a chance to either, you know, rebut to say, no, that's not our understanding, we don't think that's right, or to confirm it, to try and to explain the enemies that, that America faces, right? And they didn't. They gave me a statement that just basically repeated what they've said in other statements. You know, and this this this, this just not any intellectual leadership on this stuff to even explain to the American people who Drukdel is or how he fits into the Al-Qaeda scheme or why he's important. You know, and and that goes to show again that there's not really this sort of uh, heavy investment in this stuff. It's sort of overall the U.S. is basically very ambivalent about its own role in all this. Yeah, exactly. And and Tom, I want to make one more point about the you know what we discussed earlier um, about the military. You know, supposedly wanting keeping these wars engaged for its own purposes. Well, the whole idea of the military-industrial complex is that. The military wants to stay in wars so that the industrial, you know, it, it feeds the industrial complex, which builds tanks and airplanes and and all of the things that are used in war for warfare. Well, these wars 
uh, you know, the military industrial complex, if it even exists, doesn't benefit from this. These are small wars that require not money makers. Yeah, yeah. they're not money makers. Not and, anymore and anyway. Fact, not anymore anyway. They were yeah, maybe back in the days, but not now. Yeah. yeah, they're 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 not programs that the Defense Department wants. They don't want to build MRAPs, you know, predators and things of that need reapers or don't cost a lot. They're only a couple million dollars. You know, there's some missiles and hellfires involved. You know, when you put forces on the ground, they're typically infantry and they could be light infantry. So, you know, I just I just thought that was worth bringing up. I mean, you know, how did we kill the the two senior Al Qaeda officials in Syria with a with an RX-9 fired from a predator? How did we kill Drukdel? R9X, providing yeah, some, R9X. Or, I'm sorry, R9X. The, how did we kill Drukdel with, with uh, some ISR support with the French? How did we kill Qasem al-Rami? Probably a drone strike. Yeah, he's the third, example. He's the third example on our list. Yeah, exactly. In, in January, and, you know, yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, right? These aren't, you know, we're not sending in, you know, army corps to go after these guys that is going to benefit the, the military industrial complex. These are light missions that the and that's and that's why part of the reason the military is sort of opposed to them it gets away from what it really wants to do which is prepare for the big fight yeah it's it's again it, you know when we're talking about the u.s military obviously it's not a you know yes not a bunch of robots not a bunch of automatons there are people who descend on this stuff but certainly at a strategic level or a sort of senior policy making level we don't see any real great desire to stay in these wars at all in fact we see quite the opposite often and often the case um, you mentioned Qasem al-Rami was killed in Yemen in January. Of course, he was killed at the month after AQAP executed this attack in Pensacola, which we did a previous episode on. The, uh, episode on. Is that a, an ancient conflict in a faraway land? No. You know, I mean, again, this is America has a counterterrorism, counterterrorism interest here in stopping al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula from doing this type of thing. Um, and Qasem al-Rami was killed in Yemen. The White House issued a statement uh, trumpeting his death. But again, you know, that, that doesn't square with the, all this rhetoric on, you know, nation building, endless wars and all this other stuff. It doesn't, it sort of cuts against all those arguments, you know. And I, let's go to the fourth one here and I'll, I'll make a point before we move on to the Taliban. We got to get pulled back into this again. Um, you know, the fourth example. So we have three examples so far. We have the, the drone strike using the R9X missile in, in Idlib, Syria. We've got the killing of Drugdell. Both of those took place this month. Uh, Drugdell was killed in Mali. We have the third example of Qasem al-Rami in Yemen in January. And now the fourth example is Asim Omar, who was killed in a joint U.S.-Afghan raid in a Taliban stronghold in Musakala Helmand in, in Afghanistan in September of last year. Another senior al-Qaeda leader who was hunted down uh, by American forces. Um, this is in the theater that would, um, you know, apparently President Trump or a speechwriter was sort of uh, referring to in a condescending way as, as this sort of ancient conflict in a faraway land. Well, Asim Omar is not part of some ancient conflict. He's a, a guy who rose through al-Qaeda's ranks in the last decade and became a senior player in, in its ranks and, and was the first emir of al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. He threatened the U.S. Uh, over and over again, even though we don't think he had a direct role in any operational planning against the U.S. homeland as of today. That doesn't mean he wouldn't be involved in that tomorrow, and maybe he did even. Who knows? He was certainly working with and a comrade of other al-Qaeda operatives who have been targeting the U.S. Um, so again, this doesn't, the, the rhetoric doesn't fit the, the killing of Asim Omar. Um, you know, when, when you look at this overall picture, these, these four examples, which are all sort of unremarked again in, the, in President Trump's speech. Now, Bill, that brings me to um, something you and I noticed in the past couple of weeks. Since the February 29th withdrawal deal was signed by um, the U.S. and the Taliban in Doha, 
We haven't seen the Taliban, of course, hasn't renounced Al-Qaeda, which is what some of the press reporting said before the deal was signed, that the Taliban would or will renounce Al-Qaeda. That didn't happen. In fact, they haven't said anything about Al-Qaeda at all until a few days ago or several days ago. In Pashto, they issued a statement saying Al-Qaeda doesn't even exist in Afghanistan. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that now, I think. We have to get pulled back into this because it's an ongoing story. And so instead of saying that, oh, hey, you know, the Taliban is finally going to betray Al-Qaeda, the greatest betrayal in the history of jihadism, they're just saying Al-Qaeda is not even there. Right, Bill? Yeah, that's an effective counterterrorism partner. And after all, they've done such a good job that Al-Qaeda hasn't been in Afghanistan since what? Uh, the end of the jihad against the yeah, Soviet in Pashto, Union? Yeah, in, in, in Pashto, the statement read, and it was a different statement in, in Pashto in English. Yes. The statement in Pashto said that um, they haven't existed since the days of the Islamic Emirate, which would be 2001. Uh, so basically, they're they're claiming that after the Islamic Emirate was destroyed in 2001. Now, I mean, there's just so much evidence you can go across, and you went through a lot of it in your own piece at the Lone War Journal, Bill. Um, there's so much evidence, and I link to a bunch of examples too. I mean, this is this is one of those arguments you can cut a thousand different ways. You can show the counter the evidence that contradicts it. I mean, only a Taliban apologist who's thoroughly invested in rooting for the Taliban would deny that Al Qaeda's had a presence there uh, all this time. I mean, there's just so much evidence in that regard. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I got to be on. And look, this was so stupid to have to write. To I I, to, I approach this from okay, the Taliban saying the Al Qaeda hasn't been there. What has Al-Qaeda said about its presence in Afghanistan? So what I did was I ran down its oath of allegiance. Um, we went, I went through some bin Laden files where they, they give fitness reports of up-and-coming leaders who've – Yeah, by been, the way, that's, that's a fitness report. I found that you know there's this conspiratorial yep. notion, remember, that uh, the bin Laden files – we're going to do this in the bin Laden file episode. But there was this idea that the bin Laden files were given to us by the CIA then under uh, now Secretary Pompeo's command. He was the director of CIA at the time to justify a war with Iran. Remember that whole uh, conspiracy? Yeah. I mean, that's just <laughs> – yeah utter bullshit. But uh, we're getting into that in a future podcast. But um, this was one of those files that I found at like two o'clock in the morning, which nobody directed us to and found. And it's basically an over overview of all these personnel who were fighting in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And number one on the list was Yasin al-Suri, a guy who was operating in Iran and pushing personnel into the battlefields in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, here's here's a couple other guys who, who were involved in this. Abu Hafs al-Shiri, um, he became Al Qaeda's uh, uh, operations chief for Pakistan, but he was based in, uh, based in Afghanistan. Sufyan Al Maghrebi, he became Al Qaeda's uh, military commander for Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, we could go on and on. They, they, you know, they have one of the guys who escaped with Abu Yahya Libby. He uh, Abu was Yahya this file two thousand seven or two thousand nine, Craig. No, this file, um, I actually was able to date it based on between 2005 and 2006. Okay, because so it's that, they talk it's that about, early. That early. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So these are, so it's, it's a fascinating file. It's a, basically a fitness report on, on 19 um, up-and-coming Al-Qaeda leaders. And we were able to see that a lot of these guys, or several of these guys, rose to the highest ranks. We don't know what happened to a lot of these guys. But, you know, again, so Al Qaeda saying that Al Qaeda is giving martyrdom statements. So, well, they're not, in that case, this this file is not even saying that. This is just an internal report that we found in the Bin Laden's cache, which is yeah. is part of their internal bureaucracy. It's part of their internal yeah. management. So, and I love the comments on some of these guys too. I mean, some of them are like, "Oh, you know, he's got good religious knowledge, but he's kind of a fatty and he's not really good in the field." Yeah, you know? or and, you know or, that kind of thing. You know, so and they got other stuff. You know, like, "Oh, this guy is really good, but he's not really the sharpest tool in the shed." You know, so yeah, maybe, maybe this guy pines for his mom. Or yeah, yeah, like right. That, yeah, he just know? wants to go home. What a baby. You know, I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's this type of stuff. You can see the sort of the the context between the lines is what makes this stuff really pop. You know, and that's right. 
right, I forgot that it was that early. It was 20, 2005, 2006. But, you know, there's other guys in the files. This doesn't even capture all the guys, right? This is just some of them. I mean, you can it's, see. It, the list, yeah. the name of the report says the first report. Yeah. So I'm going to assume there's more of these reports to be oh, I'm found. Sure. I'm sure there are probably and, more reports in the files, which we're still combing through, and that's an erratic process, and I don't want to get into that here. We'll get into that when we do the podcast specifically on the Bin Laden files. Um, we found more stuff, but not more like this. This is a really good good summary. So, if, so and, and my whole point with this, and again, I feel stupid to even have to make this argument, to sit down and have to write it, but, you know, the facts are the facts. Look, either Al- the Taliban is lying or – Al-Qaeda has concocted this elaborate scheme that spanned two decades, which include internal documents that they never expected anyone to read, or maybe they did, which include fitness reports, martyrdom statements, which, by the way, are taken very, very seriously. You can't lie about this type of thing. Well, you know, the other uh, thing, Oaths the other- of Allegiance, again. You know, so did Al-Qaeda do all this over the course of two decades? Just so it could pretend that's in Afghanistan for some particular reason, or is the is is the Taliban lying? Well, you know, and it's not just from Al Qaeda, of course. I mean, you have independent sourcing. I mean, the U.S. military raids, which you documented. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you got other the UN reports, which are contested or people debate. You know, but you got there's all sorts of reporting in those. Um, you got previous previously Taliban commanders talked about Al Qaeda being there and fighting alongside them, and you have all sorts of evidence along those lines. And then you even have you know one of my favorite files that we found in the Bin Laden cache is sort of the the eulogy um, that that came out for uh, Bin Laden's right hand man in 2010, when basically the Taliban, I think you wrote this up at the time, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan issues this glowing eulogy for uh, Yazid, you know Mustafa Yazid, who was yep. basically one of the top finance guys and top uh, operators. You know, there's all sorts of evidence. I mean, there's even there's even military commission uh, trials that are sort of long delayed. That's another whole other topic I don't want to get into. Um, but some of the guys who are standing there, you know, you talk about Abdul Hadi al-Raqi, who was, was a major lieutenant for bin Laden, both before 9-11 and after 9-11. His chief responsibility was organizing guerrilla warfare in Afghanistan, you can see even in the, what he's accused of and what he's admitted that he was working with the Taliban and, and leading this joint fighting force against their common enemies in Afghanistan. I mean, it's just the, the, the evidence goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And it's just, it's, it's not credible to say this. But here's the point, right? In all this, do you think Special Representative Zalmay Khalilazad had a special meeting in Doha or Islamabad or anywhere else after this and said, hey, why are you guys denying that Al Qaeda is in Afghanistan? We really, really need you to hold up your pinky swear, your pinky promise to break with them now and to hunt them down, you know? Um, you know, no. Do you think Secretary Pompeo held them to account for this or that the U.S. is pushing back? And we just don't think they are, which is part of why we have objected to all this is that it's sort of this theater where we basically the U.S. is basically buying the, uh, the Taliban's lies without sort of questioning them and, and really holding them accountable. Or at the very least, just ignoring them because it's a very, very uncomfortable fact. I mean, look, to me, this is all the evidence we need that this withdrawal deal is um, is paramount to, to Pompeo and to Calizade and to the State Department. And to and the Defense to Department because they're complicit Defense too. With, with the minor exception this, this last week too, we had the comments from uh, General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, you know uh, – I think the way he put it was a little bit smarter than the way Pompeo and Colosada put it, but uh, wasn't probably as strong as strongly skeptical or, or cynical as you and I would be. Uh, McKenzie said, you know, he pointed to the Al Qaeda presence in Eastern Afghanistan, which is sort of an old, dated sort of way of looking at it because oh Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda has presence in multiple provinces as we've documented. Um, but then he actually he dropped a bombshell that again back in the days would have been 
front page news or would have been something that everybody would have been talking about. And that's as he, he said that Ayman al-Zawahiri himself is in eastern Afghanistan. Um, well, you know, when we talk about this, this diplomacy with the Taliban, and one of the things that you hear of the State Department types a lot is that there's this need for confidence-building measures, right? You need confidence-building measures. And what this always invariably ended up being was that the U.S. needed to somehow build the Taliban's confidence in us. Now, wait a minute. What? Right? I, I have, we, the, we, America, needs to, need to have the Taliban gain confidence in us and trust in us. I would say here's a confidence-building measure for the Taliban. If uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri really is in eastern Afghanistan, which we know the Haqqanis and other Taliban uh, units and factions are fighting there, give me Ayman al-Zawahiri's head on a platter. That would be a nice confidence-building measure for me as an American about your trustworthiness as a counterterrorism partner in Afghanistan. You know, serve him up, John the Baptist style. Let me see it. You know, give it to me. You know, uh, you know, give me Siraj Haqqani's head on a platter. You know, I mean, he's your number two. He's somebody who's been deeply in bed with al-Qaeda. Show me something here in all this. And to McKenzie's credit, McKenzie said, and this is the part that I think is, is slightly better. McKenzie said, look, you know, I we know that the Taliban fights ISIS, uh, but we still have to see some proof or some evidence that they're willing to fight Al-Qaeda. That's better than just rolling over and accepting and in, endorsing them as a counterterrorism partner, which is what Kolozad and Pompeo have done so far publicly. It's at least better to say, hey, we have to have some evidence here, right? And believe me, right, Bill? My, correct me if I'm wrong. If there was evidence tomorrow, you and I would report on it, report it that second because it would be the greatest betrayal in the history of jihadism. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it would be it would be a fantastic development. Um, something that, you know, look, I don't like the Taliban, but I, I certainly would support their break with with Al Qaeda and, and, and them hunting them down. And by the way, the Taliban made this statement that Al Qaeda isn't in Afghanistan after McKenzie. That's right. After McKenzie's statement. So they're 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 rubbing in our, our and in fact, faces. In fact, they specifically, they specifically they blasted him against him. Yeah, they specifically yeah. blasted him, saying basically yeah. he's calling him a liar, you know? Yeah. Now, if the U.S. military were really invested in this fight and the U.S. government was really invested in this fight, you would, there would be a counter-messaging operation, in effect, to say, no, Taliban, you're lying, right? It would be part of the information warfare aspect of this. The U.S. would be fighting back to say, no, here's... Here's the ways you're, here are the ways you're lying, right? But no, it's left to the long war journal to say, you and me to say, you know, they're lying. You know, why is it why is it left to you and me to say that they're lying? Why isn't there anybody no else? No one cares. Nobody Tom, cares. Exactly. They all want out. They yep. they want out of Afghanistan. Exactly. It's all the evidence we need that they want out of Afghanistan when they won't push back. I mean, my personally, my messaging campaign would be to just start taking out these guys, taking them out in Afghanistan, take them out in Pakistan. We know the Taliban's leadership there and be like, fine, you want to play this game? This is the game we'll play. But the U.S. military doesn't want to be the U.S. military in the Afghanistan. They want to be the U.S. State Department, and that's what's disgraceful in all of this. Well, so the other thing about this is that McKenzie mentioned eastern Afghanistan, and of course, this is one of the things in the Bin Laden files that comes, comes out crystal clear, and it's matched with operational data and other reporting, is that you could see Bin Laden ordered his guys out of Afga- Pakistan, excuse me, around mid-2010 to hire the drone campaign. He ordered some of them out of uh, northern Waziristan back in Afghanistan. And where did he say to go? Well, he named several provinces, not just a couple, but several that we documented, two of which were Kunar and Nuristan, which are, of course, in eastern Afghanistan. And he mentioned that Farouk al-Qahtani, who was the head of one of their main brigades or battalions, I forget, I think it was battalion, uh, maybe it's brigade, whatever, however they referred to it. I mean, it's in their own parlance, of course, was in eastern Afghanistan and had set up these safe havens for them. Um, why is that all interesting? Well, you know, it's, it's another way to show that the political commentary on all this is sort of disconnected from the reality on the ground. Fruko Katani was killed just days before the head of the 2016 presidential election in eastern Afghanistan. 
Um, and there was no, there was really little to no mention of Al Qaeda throughout the 2016 election either, uh, showing just how how uninvested in all this really people are. Yeah, no, I mean, look, and, and Al Qaeda issued a martyrdom statement for for Katani. Just more evidence, right? That, well, pra- praising him for, among other things, mainly for fighting to resurrect Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But Al Qaeda must be lying about that. Yep. You know, even though we have primary source evidence, we have the actual death of him in a drone strike in eastern Afghanistan, and we have the Treasury Department's designations of him, which were based on an interagency review of intelligence, very complex process. So there's plenty of evidence that would hold up in a court of law saying this is true. And that's actually where I, I you know, ultimately, when it comes to this issue of the Taliban and Al Qaeda, again, you know, show us something real, as McKenzie has now said. I think he's the first official to actually come out and say, you know, they need to show us something here. They can't just say that. I think the uh, NATO has made some remarks along those lines too recently, which is good. It's at least an improvement. But, you know, I, I Bill, I'm so frustrated with the information marketplace. This is one of those issues with the Taliban al-Qaeda. I don't want to debate some of these jokers who claim that there's no nothing to the issue. Like, I just want to, I, I would just want to have it involved in litigation somewhere, you know, because that way I bring into a court of law with an independent judge, and I'm sure we could win that argument, you know, 99,000 times out of 99,001, you know, or 999,000 times, 999 out of, you know, a million, you know, uh, you know, only some doofus judge probably wouldn't go with it. There's so much evidence for it. It's, it's overwhelming. I don't want to have to get into a Twitter fight over it or a Twitter storm. I mean, this is just sort of, I don't know, annoying, you know? Yeah. You know what happens when you argue with someone on the internet? Yeah, I know. Well, it, it, it just speaks to your annoyance of having to, to counter the Taliban's lie, right? First of all, why is it left to us to show the Taliban is lying? And second of all, you know, why is it that nobody remembers all this evidence that shows they're lying, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and, and back to the, you know, the information marketplace, the tal- I always say this. This is how you know um, how bad things are in Afghanistan. The Taliban's voice of jihad has been online for, I don't know what, two decades now? It's published in five languages, Dari, Pashto, English, Arabic, and uh, what am I missing? Um, Farsi? Farsi, yes, that's right. What is uh, U.S. CENTCOM or Resolute Support? How many languages is that published in? Barely one. I think one. Yeah, yeah I'd say, I would you say know. barely one because, you know, a lot yeah, of they stuff, don't even put information. Yeah, they put information out, you know. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, and, and I mean, so who's trying to dominate? So why is there no response when the Taliban says Al Qaeda is not in Afghanistan? Because we don't care about information operations anymore. And I, I'm not talking about information operations in, in terms of propaganda in order to deceive the enemy. I'm just talking about telling well, facts, the truth. basic facts. Yeah, basic. Facts. I mean, that's all that's needed. I mean, a couple with after you know, I wrote about this. I queried about the the death of Isim. Talk about. Um, you know, frustrations you mentioned with AFRICOM on, on Dell. I queried, uh, and I actually wrote about this a couple yeah. months back, about the death of Asim Umar. I'm told by Resolute Support, yeah, we got a press release. It's sitting at DOD. It's waiting to come out. So I'm going, oh, great. They're going to confirm his death, and maybe we'll get some details. And then what do I find out? DOD decides to squash it. They're not going to release information on the death of Asim Umar. Why? Because it's going to show that that the that the Al Qaeda, Asim Omar, he was killed alongside Taliban commanders. Guess who was with him? His courier to to Ayman al Zawahiri. All very uncomfortable information that that they don't want to get out. In this case, Resolute Support seemed to want to get it out. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's true. Maybe they never sent it up for approval. I don't really know. I know that that press. I do know for a fact that that press release was buried. 
and and here we are. It's just it's it's disgraceful. Well, I mean, Bill, just to, pr- to prove your point, Bill, to prove your point, did any statement ever come out of DOD on Osama Mars killing? No. no. So even even without the backstory, right? Isn't it curious, to say the least, that DOD couldn't comment on the killing of a senior al-Qaeda leader in Afghanistan in late 2019? You know, why is it the U.S. military couldn't even comment on this? Couldn't even bring itself to say, yeah, we did this. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just lame. You know, I mean, it just shows how, so it shows how disconnected from reality all this really is and just sort of how, you know, it, it, I, I think that a lot of people deserve better uh, for this sort of poor leadership, you know. And again, it, we're, we, we've talked about this many times. It's political leadership. It's military leadership. There's been a failure of leadership here across the board. And you and I think time has run out. I don't think we think this is fixable. So no, this is our argument to keep fighting. It's just an argument against whitewashing the Taliban. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, and, and at the end of the day, is this what we're going to send our sons and daughters to go fight for, for a, a, a political and military leadership? That is subservient to the Taliban. That is that refuses to um, fight for victory. Um, that refuses to defend. Forget about its own fighting actions. for victory. They won't even issue a press release on the killing of a senior al Qaeda. Yeah, that's leader, a, you know? that was my next I mean, point. I mean, right? To I mean forget about victory. Actions, right. This is go to connect this back to President Trump's speech of 2017. He said he was going to give the armed servicemen. You know, and uh, men and women, he was going to give them a plan for victory. They deserve a plan for victory, is what he said in, in August 21st, 2017. Flash forward, you know, two years later, he's trying to invite the Taliban to Camp David. Flash forward several months later from that, the U.S. can't even issue a press release saying, hey, we got a big Al Qaeda bad, baddie in Afghanistan, you know? Uh, forget about plan for victory here, okay? We just need some, you know, can we just get some basic facts out about what's going on? That's basically how this thing is, has, has fallen, uh, has, has slid away from reality, and has just entered this sort of, I don't know, it's a depressing sort of state of affairs to watch all this. That this is this is what it's, has come of American power, really, that you can't even get a press release out about killing a senior Al-Qaeda guy. Tom, our cynicism is well-founded. Yep, yep, exactly. I think we can leave it there. This is another depressing episode of Generation Jihad for all you guys during the pandemic. Um, you know, you're looking for if you're looking for a cheery pick pick me up or this this ain't it, folks. Uh, this is not it at all. Uh, if you're sequestered at home and looking to have some cheery talk and some uh, rah rah stuff, you know, there's other self help podcasts and types of things you can go listen to. This just is not it. Uh, we're not we're very cynical and jaded after all these years, but hey, we're going to keep reporting on it because it is an endless jihad, and jihadis are going to keep fighting whether we do or not. But thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. We will definitely continue to issue press releases on what the Long War Journal is doing and what the podcast is doing, and we will see you again next week. Bye.